Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Every family has an origin story. One passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Karen, you remember when you were talking to that librarian up in Canada? Yeah. Sure. We were trying to check out whether this sort of amazing story we had heard had really, truly happened, what, like 80 years ago, so that we could put it in our book if it did turn out to be true. Oh, yes. The incident on the train tracks in Halifax. And this librarian was really helpful. She led me to a story published in 1937 in the Halifax Herald. Yeah. Look at this front page. All of these headlines from 1937 about how the world was really starting to come apart. British soldiers being shelled in Shanghai, Italy walking out of a peace conference, and a new law passed in Germany making it illegal for Jews to go into business with non-Jews. All of this foreshadowing of World War II coming. And then right here on the same front page, this little headline, Dr. Mrs. Death. Wow. You know... The story of autism could have turned out very differently if what happened in Halifax had a different ending, too. September 1937. A brisk afternoon by the harbor in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So close to the water, you can almost taste the salt in the air. Dr. Leo Connor, who likes to walk, sets off on a stroll along the train tracks that trace the shoreline. Connor is 43 years old and about a year away from starting the research on autism that today defines his career for most of us. But at this point, he's already well known as the world's leading authority on child psychiatry. His book on the topic is the standard text. He heads the clinical department of child psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, the first of its kind in the world. He's up in Canada for a conference. During a break, he takes a ferry across Halifax Harbor to have lunch at the home of an old friend. Afterwards, Connor decides to walk back to the ferry landing. It's a gorgeous walk along a set of railroad tracks. But at a certain point, these tracks cut out across a stretch of water, a little inlet called Dartmouth Cove. So now the tracks are running on top of this rickety wooden bridge. It's a train trestle about 20 feet above the water. And it's really narrow, just wide enough for a single set of railroad tracks. So there's really no shoulder there and there are no guardrails. 
But getting across it looks like it should take a minute or two at most, so Connor continues on, steps onto the trestle, and starts stepping carefully from railroad tie to railroad tie. He's out near the middle of the bridge when he sees the train coming at him. The train is moving fast. He's already too late to run back. His only option? Jump. But he doesn't jump. Instead, he attempts this sort of weird maneuver where he steps out as far as he can on one of the railroad ties, and he tries to make himself as small as he can, I guess in the hope that there would be enough room for this oncoming locomotive to just squeeze by without hitting him. It doesn't work. The train hits him. It just clips him. Connor falls, his overcoat flapping up around him, his arms flailing, and then he hits the water. He's terrified. And not just because he's just been hit by a train. It's for the same reason that he chose not to jump. He can't swim. It is definitely not looking good for the doctor from Baltimore. What, what do I feel about retirement and yes. death? Yes. Well, for one thing, I so far haven't retired. Here's Connor years later in an interview. The quality is kind of rough here and there, so we brought in a voice actor to recreate Connor's words verbatim. What do I feel about retirement and death? Well, for one thing, so far I haven't retired. Secondly, as to death, that is something that comes to everybody. I was near death when I had my accident in Nova Scotia, and since then... It has given me a great deal of satisfaction to know that, at that time, I wasn't panicking. The only thought I had then was, it's a good thing my insurance policies are all paid up. Debt comes to everybody. It will come to me. So just when it looks like he's going to drown, Connor gets really lucky. A member of the train crew named Murray Haynes, according to the newspaper story, sees the doctor hit the water, and Haynes dives into the cold waters. He gets to Connor and pulls him to shore. A passerby runs for help from a doctor who lives nearby. Connor is badly shaken up, and he has a broken hip. But he's alive. And Connor recovered pretty quickly. He was out of his plaster cast within a matter of months and never even had a limp after everything that happened. He does complain, however, that the accident left him unable to dance. Which, of course, was a joke, because Connor could never dance to begin with. Connor may have made light of what happened, but when John and I were researching the origins of the autism diagnosis, we always wondered, what would the world be like if that guy hadn't jumped in to save him? How would we be thinking about kids with autism? Would we still be locking kids away for life? Euthanizing them? Sterilizing them? Would autism, as we understand it today even have been recognized by now? Your question is an extremely important one, probably an unanswerable one. That's Dr. Leon Eisenberg. He worked under Connor as a young doctor, and then he went on to become a huge figure himself in child psychiatry. It's a question that's raised in physics all the time, and you get these wonderful stories about the guy who goes to sleep and sees the six carbon atoms holding their hands. And when he wakes up in the morning, he says, that's it, that's it, that's it. Well, what capacity to take an abstract problem and to make it visual, to see the, the atoms holding on to each other and then translate it back to words 
is a question I think we haven't really successfully answered. So your question is important. It's probably unanswerable. From iHeartRadio, this is Autism's First Child. I'm Karen Zucker. And I'm John Donvan. In our last episode, we met Beeman and Mary Triplett of Forest, Mississippi. Their determination to unlock the meaning of their little boy Donald's unexpected behavior will change history. In this episode, Donald meets the father of child psychiatry. Episode 2, Connor Syndrome. In 1937, a young couple from a town called Forest, Mississippi, Beeman and Mary Triplett, brought their three-year-old boy, who was acting and speaking in ways they didn't understand, to an institution about an hour and a half from their home, to live there, without them. They arrived at the institution, checked him in, and then they drove home. There's no way for us to know how painful this was for Mary and Beeman. But they were doing what parents in that era were told to do by almost the entire medical establishment whenever a child in the family presented as mentally defective. Those two words just sound so horrible. But in that era, that's how doctors talked about kids like Donald who were different. The idea was to remove those kids from their families like they were not fully human and even posed a danger to society. And then the families were told to move on with their lives, as though these kids didn't even exist. To get on with their lives, that was the phrase they used, have more kids, that kind of thing. Marion Beeman did that. They had another son, Oliver, with Donald away. So they were kind of playing by the rules. But there was a part of them that we think didn't feel right about that. And here's what we know happened next. They wanted, basically, to get another opinion about Donald. And they wanted to get it not just from another doctor, but from the top child psychiatrist in the country, if not the world. Who was none other than the man who nearly perished in that train accident less than a year earlier, Dr. Leo Connor. Now, Connor is a fascinating and singular character. Here's Dr. Leon Eisenberg again, reflecting on his mentor's personality. He was an unusual child with an unusual capacity for memory and for seeing patterns where they were not self-evident. He was born in Austria, and he went to med school in Berlin. Well, I might say briefly in the introduction that I had originally had my medical training in Berlin Medical School. That's from an interview with Dr. Connor in 1972. It's one of three long interviews recently discovered by the archivist at the American Psychiatric Association. And these tapes have probably only ever been heard by a handful of scholars. I had some excellent teachers that included a classical student of organic psychosis and would later be punished after going against Hitler and his son was killed by Nazis. I specialized first in internal medicine. I came in on the ground floor of electrocardiography and published my thesis on electrocardiographic work and also my first paper. Connor was 30 years old and had a growing medical practice in Berlin when he moved to Yankton, South Dakota on a whim in 1924. An American physician he had grown close to helped Connor land a position at the South Dakota State Hospital for the Insane. 
Connor was fluent in seven languages when he arrived in Yankton. Unfortunately, English wasn't one of them. He worked at changing that, just as he worked hard at becoming culturally American, buying a Chevy, taking up golf, joining a weekly poker game. Back then, the field of psychiatry was still new and not really professionalized like it is today. Basically, there was Freud and a lot of Germans and Austrians theorizing about neuroses. And then there were just regular doctors working in mental hospitals, figuring out how to help patients just using their instincts. They were basically self-taught, and that's how Connor learned psychiatry. Also working in Yankton, he developed his own values and philosophies about how mental patients should be treated them. One of them was he thought we should avoid pigeonholing people and getting to know them as individuals, as people with their own stories that needed to be listened to. And doing that became one of the hallmarks of his life's work. Here's the late Dr. James Harris, another of Connor's protégés from Hopkins, in an interview with the BBC. He was a wise man, a scholar, a compassionate uh, clinician. Although he was retired, he would drop by the clinic and encourage staff members in their work. But I think most importantly was his rapport with children. Children talked to him. He listened. His timing was exceptional. He was particularly concerned that children be treated as individuals. They tell their stories. If you let them, if you don't use the aha reaction, you know what I mean by that. Some people look at a drawing and say, aha, this means this and this means that. To whom? To the interpreter. But if you get a kid a chance to talk about it, you'd get their story and not your biases and preoccupations. Connor got restless in Yankton, and in 1928, he left to work on a three-year fellowship at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. When the fellowship was finished, Hopkins gave Connor the job of setting up the first psychiatric department within a pediatric hospital in the United States. In short order, he became the field's most prominent figure. But at the start, the hospital provided Connor with just a small room that had a washstand and a desk. The little acorn from which the oak of the Children's Psychiatric Service at Johns Hopkins Hospital grew was not much to look at. I was installed in an abandoned annex in the Harriet Lane home, which was once used as an isolation ward for children with infectious diseases. The room assigned to me had a shaky white table. There was no waiting room, and there was nobody to look after the children when I interviewed the parents. Occasionally, an adventurous rodent found its way up from the cellar and nibbled at the sandwich which I'd brought for lunch. But it grew from there. As Connor became a major figure in the United States and eventually around the world, whose textbook called Child Psychiatry became the standard in the field, and Hopkins itself became the training ground for dozens of young doctors who would go on to forever change our understanding of pediatric psychiatry. And it's where, one day in the summer of 1938, Connor received a letter from the father of Donald Triplett. Now, John and I know something about the backstory of this letter. We know that back in Forest, Beeman Triplett dictated to his secretary while she filled her notepad with shorthand. Then she typed it all up. Beeman wasn't just a successful lawyer. He was a man with first-rate observational skills, and he was determined to compose a really full, complete, comprehensive biography of this four-year-old child that he and his wife had sent away. And this letter, he wrote, would turn out to be a game changer. In time, his words would travel far and wide around the world. They would be quoted in scholarly research 
They'd be discussed in university classrooms. They would be translated into many, many languages. But on that humid day in Forest, it was just one father speaking from his heart about his boy. He seems to be self-satisfied. He is never glad to see father or mother. He has no apparent affection when petted. He does not observe the fact that anyone comes or goes and never seems glad to see father or mother or any playmate. He seems to draw into his shell and live within himself. He seldom comes to anyone when called, but has to be picked up and carried or led wherever he ought to go. Beeman described Donald's eating habits, his verbal patterns, the age at which he learned to walk and count and hum and sing. And here's the thing. Little Donald showed glimmers of real brilliance for a young child and has just tantalized his parents to see how he dialed in on activities that captivated him in such an intense way. At the age of two, Donald memorized the words of many songs and the melodies that went with them, the names of all of the presidents of the United States. But here's the other thing. According to his father, Donald could do little with these facts beyond reciting them rotely. He said that conversation with his son was impossible because Donald seemed to have no interest in people and he wasn't learning to ask or answer questions. In fact, he said that his son seemed unreachable by any of the usual ways that parents connect with their kids. He appears to always be thinking and thinking and to get his attention almost requires one to break down a mental barrier between his inner consciousness and the outside world. Beeman's letter went on and on like this. By the time his secretary finished typing the letter, it ran to 33 single-spaced pages. And it's historic because it would be the basis of a landmark account of a child with autism, a term and diagnosis that did not yet exist. When we return, Beeman and Mary Triplett stage a rescue for their little boy. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Beeman sent the letter off to Baltimore, and Connor received it, and he read it, and he wanted to see Donald. A date was set. 
And in those days, Forest, Mississippi was a long way away from Baltimore, Maryland. But that's where Donald was heading now for an in-person meeting with Dr. Connor during the first week of October, 1938. Beeman Triplett's letter describing Donald is a hugely important document because it's just so influential. But sadly for us, for everyone, most of what he wrote has been lost. We have excerpts, quotations from it that Connor published, but the original, it's gone. And there don't seem to be any copies, so we've never been able to read the full text. Not that we didn't try. In fact, we searched for that letter a long, long time. We pestered Johns Hopkins to look through their archives, and they never turned it up, although we did find some of Donald's initial medical records there. We went through every page of the Connor Archive at the American Psychiatric Association. Then we went down to Forrest and visited Beeman's old law office, where there was a room stuffed with old rusting metal file cabinets, stuffed with papers, but nothing there of that letter. We went to an old bank vault in Forrest that his family used to store the overflow from Beeman's law practice and went through all of those filing cabinets, nothing there. Then Donald let us go through all of the cupboards and closets and drawers and attics in the house where he grew up. His family had saved everything. In fact, up in the attic, we found love letters between Mary and Beeman from the early 1920s, perfectly preserved after a century. But we just didn't find what we were looking for, that famous letter. So writing that letter was just one step Donald's parents took. The next one was even more important in Donald's life. They had sent him away because they were told it was the right thing to do. Now, they decided it wasn't the right thing at all. Here's Donald's nephew, O.B. Triplett. I think one day she said, you know what? I'm not doing this. I am not doing this. It doesn't, you know, doesn't feel right or whatever. And then, you know, we're going to turn the page and, and start another chapter in, in the life of Don. So they drove back down to that institution and they told the director they were taking Donald out and taking him back home. And here's the amazing thing. They got pushback. The director insisted, and this is a quote, Donald is getting along nicely now. And he said they should leave him alone, which meant leave him there. But Mary's mind was made up. She dressed Donald in clothes she had brought him from home. And then the three of them got in the car and they drove home together. And now to Baltimore. Donald had just turned five a few days earlier when he and his parents boarded the train in Meridian, Mississippi. The train journey took two days across seven states. And for Donald, we imagine this trip must have been one of those bewildering, maybe mesmerizing explosions of new sensory experiences. I mean, don't we all have that experience in a train at night, staring out the windows, watching the lights sling through the blackness outside? Their journey ended in Baltimore at the Harriet Lane Home for Invalid Children. After a physical exam, Donald was led into a hospital library and presented to a group of roughly 30 physicians. Donald locked eyes on some alphabet blocks in one of the doctor's hands. He grabbed them and started spinning them, seemingly completely oblivious to anything else going on. And a little later, he walked up to one of the older doctors and reached up to stroke his beard. Our research on Donald's story brought us to the library at the American Psychiatric Association in Arlington, Virginia. I spent a lot of time there and found, amongst many other things, that Leo Connor had written an unpublished autobiography 
More recently, a series of audio recordings of long interviews Connor sat for in the late 1960s and 1970s was discovered. And Karen, you made a really interesting find in the Hopkins archives, the intake notes on Donald for when he first got to Hopkins. Yeah, they were only a few pages long, but no journalist had ever seen them before. In October 1938, a five-year-old boy was brought to me from Forest, Mississippi. I was struck by the uniqueness of the peculiarities which Donald exhibited. He could, since the age of two and a half years, tell the names of all presidents and vice presidents, recite the letters of the alphabet forwards and backwards, and flawlessly, with good enunciation, rattle off the 23rd Psalm. Yet he was unable to carry on an ordinary conversation. He was out of contact with people, while he could handle objects skillfully. His memory was phenomenal. The few times when he addressed someone, largely to satisfy his wants, he referred to himself as you, and to the person a desk as I. He didn't respond to any formal intelligence testing, but manipulated intricate form boards jointly. Donald remained in Baltimore for two weeks observation and study at the Child Study Center on whose board of directors I was a member. And of course, Connor and his colleagues remarked on all of the ways that Donald appeared to isolate himself. Connor observed that Donald showed disappointment when he didn't get his way, and it seemed that he did like getting praise. That's all stuff a typical child would do. But Connor also noted Donald doing some really unusual things. For example, he would walk around drawing letters in the air with his fingers and speaking out random words like semicolon and capital and 12-12. He chewed on paper. He put food in his hair. He threw books into the toilet. He put a key down the water drain. He threw temper tantrums. He climbed all over the furniture. So Donald spent two weeks being observed in Baltimore. And after that, the family went back home to Mississippi And from that point on, Mary started sending almost monthly letters to Connor describing how he was doing at home. And some of what she wrote showed some real development going on. He learned to read fluently and to play simple tunes on the piano. He began responding to yes or no questions. He started building things with his blocks, watering flowers with his hose, playing store with the household groceries. Yet it was clear that Donald still had some serious challenges And he made several more visits to Baltimore over the next few years, kind of becoming one of Connor's favorite patients. The truth is Donald fascinated Leo Connor and made him want to figure out exactly how this boy was different and why. And Donald's parents wanted to know the same thing. We found some correspondence between Connor and Mary where she admitted to being worried that she had, quote, a hopelessly insane child. Connor took these feelings seriously, and he wanted her to be more optimistic. In his next letter, he urged her to, quote, refrain from that type of gloom. Many times, he wrote to reassure her that her efforts to help Donald were splendid and often heroic. Donald, he insisted, was fortunate in having you for a mother. Important things were happening in Donald's life during these years. In the fall of 1939, he began the first grade. Mary wrote Connor about that also, October 1939. The first day was very trying for him, but each succeeding day, he's improved very much. Don is much more independent. He wants to do many things for himself. He marches in line nicely, answers when called upon, and is more biddable and obedient. In March of 1940, 
in the middle of the first grade year. Mary noted to Connor, The greatest improvement I noticed is in his awareness of things about him. He talks very much more and asks a good many questions. Not often does he voluntarily tell me things at school, but if I ask leading questions, he answers them correctly. He really enters into the games with other children. One day, he enlisted the family in one game he had just learned, telling each of us just what to do. Donald paid another visit to Connor in 1941. He was inexhaustible in bringing up variations like how many days in a week, years in a century, hours in a day, hours in a half day, weeks in a century, centuries in half a millennium. So it's now four years since Connor and Donald met, and Mary's starting to get impatient for something. She wants a solid explanation, a diagnosis. She writes to Connor, complaining that he had given her only generalities. The truth was, he confessed, that he still simply could not match Donald with any familiar or standard label, nothing that was in the textbooks, nor could he predict Donald's future prospects. Donald's behaviors comprised a syndrome Connor was still struggling to see in full. But then he told her some news, that he was beginning to realize that Donald had a novel kind of syndrome. He said he was putting together a paper detailing the outlines of this new diagnosis. He kept this news to himself, he said, because he wanted to have sufficient time to observe the children and follow their development. Soon, however, he intended to go public with these findings and to give his discovery a name. In 1943, Dr. Leo Connor published his landmark paper, Autistic Disturbances of Effective Contact. For here, we seem to have pure culture examples of inborn autistic disturbances of effective contact. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The way Connor describes autism, the way he wrote about it, and the language he used was remarkable in itself. What he did made autism, you know, sort of a thing because it was so clear and accessible to the reader. That's Dr. Joseph Piven. I'm a psychiatrist with training in child and adolescent psychiatry and adult psychiatry. 
Uh, I've done a number of different um, things in my research career. Now is um, looking at infants at high familial risk for autism and following them over time, looking at how their brains develop and their behavior and have kind of connected with uh, Leo Connor in that area. Dr. Piven is a big fan of Leo Connors. I give a lot of talks to uh, trainees and students, and particularly those that don't know about autism, maybe graduate students in neuroscience. And, um, and I ask the students to read that first paper, because while it's not synonymous with the breadth and, and of the way we think about autism today, it's just so rich in its description. I often talk about how you, you could you could read the DSM you know, all day and, and sit on the on a bus next to somebody with autism and not realize that they have autism. But if you read Leo Connor's accounts, it just as you say leaps off the page. You know, not only was he an astute observer in general and a great writer, but he was able to kind of distill some of the essential features out that are still with us today and we're still sort of wrestling with terms that really kind of have persisted in our uh, conversation, like insistence on sameness. Something that's important to understand, the term autistic wasn't something that Connor came up with on his own. It had been coined a few decades earlier to describe a behavior that was thought to be unique to schizophrenia, where people sometimes withdraw for a while socially and appear to lose contact with the outer world. So back in the 1930s and 1940s, psychiatrists who described somebody as autistic or displaying autism meant only that the person was behaving that way, that socially withdrawn way for the moment. It described one symptom, not a syndrome. And definitely it did not yet describe the diagnosis we know today. Various psychiatrists applied it to various people with various constellations of behaviors. And now Connor was using it to characterize something about the complex set of behaviors he saw in Donald and the other children that together he believed constituted a single, never-before-recognized diagnosis. Here's Connor again in 1966. In my search for an appropriate designation, I decided on the term early infantile autism, thus accentuating the time of the first manifestations and the children's limited accessibility. Years later, Dr. Connor claimed that identifying autism was serendipity. He didn't discover this syndrome, he said, because it was always there. Connor, however, knew that in psychiatry, the obvious often went unrecognized until someone looked at it with the right set of eyes. And that's what Leo Connor had. Meeting Donald, thinking about Donald, gave him the right set of eyes to recognize what today we call autism. Today we call it autism, but there was a time, and you can still find this in the medical literature from the 1950s, when the syndrome that Leo Connor wrote about was called by many professionals, Connor's syndrome. In the mid-20th century, having a syndrome named for you is considered a great honor, but Connor didn't really go for it. I am identified little too closely with one particular thing that I did and that I consider a vignette of my activities rather than the main principle, but now autism is identified with me and I with it. I think it just speaks to the fact that he was an incredible human being and incredible human beings don't try and sell themselves on one thing they accomplished. That's Dr. Piven. 
if you train at Hopkins in child psychiatry, interacting with uh, Leo Connor is unavoidable. You know, so he clearly was the first director of child psychiatry at Hopkins. That's not a small thing in those days. He wrote the first textbook on child psychiatry. So he essentially established the field of child psychiatry. But he also used his stature and position in some of the cultural wars of his era. Remember, he was working when ideas like eugenics still had a huge following among important people. Well, here's a clip of Connor describing an argument he started at the American Psychiatric Association meeting in 1941. 25 years ago, at the meeting of the APA in Richmond in 1941, a then famous neurologist from New York gave a talk on euthanasia for the feeble-minded, with the general feeling they are a drag on society, off with their heads, too much money. I rarely get real angry, but I did at the time. And there was no discussion anticipated, but I got up and had my say, whereupon I was asked to give a talk the next year at the 1942 meeting in Boston, which I did, and which I called exoneration of the feeble-minded. You know... Connor's use of the term feeble-minded reminds us that he was still very much a man of his time. But the fact that he was doing battle with the eugenicists also shows us how he was ahead of his time, too. And that he pioneered the entire field of child psychiatry, which took that special ability to listen and to empathize. It really helped to open the door to a lot of progress and growth and healing. And yes... If he hadn't survived being hit by that train, who knows where we'd be? But we know Connor would never have met Donald. And Donald would never have met Connor. And in this version of how autism came to be known to the world at large, well, the two of them meeting, it's how it did happen. And it really was everything. I'm John Donvan. And I'm Karen Zucker. Autism's First Child is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts, and it's based on our book and our documentary film, In a Different Key. Autism's First Child is produced by Alexander Ritchie. Our story editors are Matt Riddle and Alex French, senior staff writer at iHeart Originals. Original score composed and mixed by Elise McCoy. Additional scoring, mixing, and mastering by Alexander Ritchie. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Special thanks to Ray Conley, Ernie Indradot, and Will Pearson. Editing and assembly by Kareem Benyagub. Voice work by Louis Carlozo, Ben Ritchie, and Missy Ritchie. For the recordings of Dr. Leo Connor, special thanks to Dina Gorlin of the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, Melvin Sapshin, MD, Library and Archives, and APA Foundation. School of Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, 
will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 